0: listening to Descent
1: Magazine's Belaboured podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hello, Sarah. I'm Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode 119. We're speaking this episode with Bill Lodrigan of Kentucky's AFL-CIO about the right to work, the right to work for less, and what it all means for labor in Kentucky and across the nation. But first, the news... As Trump moves to stuff his cabinet with business moguls and conservative hardliners, his apparent effort to railroad through as many Senate confirmations as he could within a few days prior to his inauguration has led to intense backlash. In the hearing for Trump's pick for Secretary of Education, Michigan philanthropist capitalist Betsy DeVos has been delayed for now. Of course, Republicans still plan to approve her, but there is now renewed scrutiny over the connection between her business empire, her political ties to the religious right, and the charter school empire that she has lorded over in Michigan. In a letter sent to DeVos, several senators, including Al Franken and Elizabeth Warren, inquired about her fishy ties to a range of right-wing groups. Those include things with innocuous names, such as American Federation for Children, which is tied to the school choice movement. There's the Koch Brothers Associated Wisconsin Club for Growth. Uh, The American Legislative Exchange Council, which you've reported on a number of times before. One of the major advocates for pro-privatization legislation at the state level, um, as well as a sponsor of uh, several right-to-work efforts, which we'll be hearing about later in this episode and other groups friendly with DeVos are aligned with the charterization and school voucher movements. This could seriously compromise her ethically, of course, because she's overseeing the very same public school system that these groups are actively seeking to destroy by enabling their takeover by religious and for-profit charter management corporations. And as we noted in the last Blabored, her own ideological views reflect those of the hardline Christian right. Her long-standing ties to religious organizations suggest that, wrapped up in her privatization agenda, is an effort to drive religious education into the school system. Overall, aside from the corporate ties, her track record in in Detroit's dysfunctional public school system has led teachers' unions as well as even charter operators to denounce her for undermining public education by turning schools over to unaccountable corporate managers. As one Detroit journalist, Stephen Henderson, explains in The Washington Post, as Secretary of Education, DeVos would be expected to help set standards, guide accountability, and oversee research in a way that benefits children, through outcomes, not one particular interest or industry. Moreover, the Secretary of Education must understand the value of both high-performing charters and traditional public schools, but she has no track record of working along those lines and no experience that suggests that she's even interested in it. Largely as a result of DeVos's lobbying, Henderson writes, Michigan tolerates more low-performing charter schools than just about any other state, and it lacks any effective mechanism for shutting down or even improving failing charters. In fact, DeVos is actually loathed even by other charter school operators who see her as a taint on the brand. Right. So teachers' unions and civil rights activists are getting in uh, on the game by trying to thwart her nomination however they can, but of course... The message that Labor has to send is about a lot more than a single nominee. Essentially, thanks to people like DeVos taking over schools, all you need is money to start up a charter school in Michigan. And now she's proving that all you need is money to become Secretary of Education. Schools are not just on the chopping block, folks. They're on the auction block. As we record, Fight
0: for 15 workers around the country are protesting Donald Trump's proposed labor secretary, Andy Puzder, CEO of the company that runs Hardee's and Carl's Jr. Many of the workers leading these marches are employees of Puzder's restaurants. The Fight for 15 Twitter feed has been a collage all day of photos and videos of Hardee's and Carl's Jr. workers talking about their experiences. Signs and chants allude to Puzder's famous comments that machines, unlike workers, quote, are always polite, they always upsell, they never take a vacation, they never show up late, there's never a slip and fall or an age, sex, or race discrimination case. Speaking of that sex discrimination case that he wants to avoid so much, Posters restaurants also hold the dubious honor of having a sexual harassment rate of over 60% in a survey conducted by Restaurant Opportunity Center. That is over 20% higher than the already alarming 40% average in the industry. Workers also report wage theft and denial of breaks and other potential violations of labor law. Puzder's comments that workers got, quote, stature and a sense of accomplishment from being managers that would be taken away by the Obama administration's expanded overtime pay rule also came in for anger and mockery. And of course, there's always that pesky pay disparity between CEOs and their workers. One worker held a sign that declared, Andy Puzder earns more in one day than I do in one year. Of course, we should not neglect that the news was leaked this week that Hillary Clinton had planned to give the Labor Department to Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz, who, of course, has his own inequality problem and complaints of bad conditions in his stores, which we have covered on this podcast several times. The ongoing testimonies of Trump's various cabinet nominees has been hard to follow since so many of the confirmation hearings were scheduled at the same time. So as of now, it is still unclear whether Puzder will face significant pushback from
1: Congress, but the workers in any case are not giving up. And just when you thought Uber couldn't get any more ubiquitous in New York, they're now breaking into the upstate market. Governor Andrew Cuomo... Announced a long anticipated plan to enable ride sharing across the state by granting the ride sharing behemoth Uber special regulatory status. This plan includes a regulatory regime administered at the state level. This is in lieu of allowing local transit authorities to oversee their operations as they do with taxi services. Taxi driver advocates are outraged that Cuomo is purporting to regulate Uber while at the same time shielding them from basic local regulation, even though it is local drivers who, of course, tend to be most heavily impacted by the breakneck expansion of ride-sharing apps like Uber. As we've reported before, the model involves an app-driven ride service that does not formally employ the driver, leaving them without protections for fair wages, insurance, workers' compensation, and other legal liabilities. And with that, of course, comes additional exposure to things like injury and unfair firing. Révi Desai of New York Taxi Workers' Alliance warned in a statement... Quote, by granting Uber special treatment as opposed to holding it accountable to the same laws as the taxi and for hire industry, what Governor Cuomo is expanding upstate is poverty wages. Regulations in place now, like those in Rochester, where there are over 300 taxi drivers, most of whom are black, protect full time income. She adds that if we let Uber wipe out these rules under the governor's new regulation, Among the first casualties will be the governor's promise of $15 an hour and job creation, unquote. And aside from those nominally progressive measures like the uptick in the minimum wage, Cuomo has been criticized for being way too cozy with corporate lobbyists of all industries, and he seems especially friendly with Uber as he seeks a potential White House run. Furthermore, many are concerned that Within the rideshare industry, the shift towards driverless vehicles, which Uber is experimenting with in other cities, much to the distress of both drivers and pedestrians, is going to lead to even its own drivers being pushed out of work. Overall, Uber has resisted local regulations and also resisted local taxes by lobbying for unbridled expansion of their ridesharing fleets despite the detrimental local impact this could have on wages and working conditions. Cuomo, of course, insists that his plan would include comprehensive background checks and other safeguards, but the Upstate Transportation Association, which represents local livery drivers, stated that it would be a mistake for Cuomo to exempt Uber drivers from local safety regulations, and also the group seeks a ban on driverless cars for at least 50 years. Hmm. Well, there's some immediate hope on the horizon with the potential for labor organizing across industries within the for-hire vehicle sector. This would combine rideshare drivers with traditional cab drivers to form collective bargaining units. This is already being experimented with, as we've reported before, under special legislation in Seattle, which allows independent contractors to engage in some kind of uh, modified collective bargaining arrangement, including some government actors. But with Uber expanding faster than local authorities can pass new regulations, it looks like, at least in New York, a race to the bottom for both Uber drivers and traditional cabbies.
0: And, of course, heading into Inauguration Week, many people are heading to D.C. for various protest actions, holding marches and rallies in their hometowns. But thousands of people are now pledging to do something else Inauguration Weekend, to go on strike. Inspired by the women's strikes in Poland, Argentina, and Iceland earlier in 2016, an organization called National Women's Liberation is calling for a strike of all paid and unpaid labor on inauguration weekend. Following the demands of the Wages for Housework movement and global women's strike and socialist feminists like Selma James, they are calling on women to also refrain from childcare and emotional work as well as stay home from their jobs. There is also alongside this a call for a national sick-out against Trump, introduced by Michael Goodwin and brought to my and many people's attention by recent belabored guest Stephanie Luce. No work, no shopping. We are sick of Trump. The idea of the general strike has gained steam in recent years, after the Wisconsin uprising in Occupy in particular, and of course back in the 2000s, the day without an immigrant, which seems, uh, once again, startlingly relevant. In terms of understanding where people have the power to resist the Trump agenda, the workplace remains one of the most important sites of resistance, particularly since the Trump administration is basically the bad boss administration. We will post more information on these various strike calls on the dissent website and let us know, as always, if you plan on going on strike.
1: Well, the Bluegrass State took on a shade of red this past week when Kentucky became the last of the southern states, basically, to pass a right-to-work law. Right-to-work legislation has become a huge issue for organized labor because it threatens to undermine their ability to finance their operations by collecting fees from every worker who is represented at a given unionized workplace under the collective bargaining agreement. We caught up with Bill Laudrigan, president of the Kentucky AFL-CIO, to talk about the ramifications for workers, how these laws are being perceived by both union and non-union workers, and what labor organizing is going to look like under Right to Work and under Donald Trump. So explain the legislation that passed and what exactly it means um, for Kentucky specifically.
2: Well, the legislation, the first uh, bill uh, that we uh, were, was on the agenda was House Bill 1, uh, which is the so-called right-to-worker uh, for less bill, uh, House Bill 3, which is the repeal of our state prevailing wage law, and Senate Bill 6, which was the uh, paycheck deception bill. Uh, and each one of them are you know, aimed specifically uh, at lowering wages for Kentucky's hardworking men and women. Uh, as you know, the right-to-work law is basically a law-directed, Uh, specifically at labor unions to try to undermine our financial capabilities uh, to create divisions among our membership and, uh, you know, impact our public image. So it's a a bill that has many implications, but uh, has been, uh, of course, you know, passed in many other states, and uh, uh, Kentucky's just been the latest victim here. Uh, As Bill 3 was the uh, prevailing wage repeal, Uh, Kentucky's had a prevailing wage law covering all its public uh, construction uh, since I believe we had 96 when we got it back. It had uh, been repealed previously, and, and we, we ended up getting it back again for this long period of time. Uh, and uh, it has a great impact on our construction workers. Uh, and it, we have always viewed it as a really good public policy that supports our local communities, local contractors, and uh, certainly uh, without it uh, we can see some real uh, serious problems uh, economic problems, not only for individual workers, whether they be union or non-union, uh, but also contractors, uh, as well as entire communities. So certainly another uh, draconian measure that they've passed try- that repeals our prevailing wage laws, uh, and as well as the uh, so-called paycheck deception law that was intended to try and prevent uh, unions from automatically deducting, uh, in, in, uh, in association with their employers, uh, from automatically deducting uh, union fees and dues uh, from from their regular paychecks, as we have done uh, for, for many, many decades now. Uh, certainly another, you know, attempt to disrupt our bargaining relationship and our ability to be, you know, financially stable. That the bill, uh, fortunately, uh, was amended, you know, significantly enough so that there was, uh, you know, uh, uh, parts of it taken out, uh, especially relating to the coverage of private sector employers that was removed, uh, as well as the requirement for the Annual, you know, sign up of union members uh, annually uh, for dues deductions. So those things were were eliminated, but there are still some elements of it that uh, we certainly are not in, in agreement with.
1: And those basically passed all together in one fell swoop, and that was what the protest at the state house was about, right?
2: That's correct. When you describe it as one fell swoop, uh, let me just describe how this session is structured. Uh, the you know odd years uh, we have a 30-day session. The uh, first four days, which were, were last week, uh, were typically reserved for organizational purposes to make sure everybody knew where everybody was, and uh, all committee assignments were made. Leadership uh, uh, assignments were, were made. Uh, and other, you know, miscellaneous items and maybe a few bills to be heard. Uh, And then they would uh, recess for uh, almost a month uh, into the first week of February. Uh, So on this occasion, they decided that, uh, you know, now in control, uh, that they would ram these bills uh, through the legislative process uh, as uh, quickly uh, and, uh, you know, as kind of secretly as they possibly thought they could. And they used the first four days, but... Having to requirements for various readings and committee hearings, of course, they weren't able to uh, actually adjust the rules enough to make it happen in four days. So, for the first time in decades, they added a Saturday session uh, so that each of the chambers could vote on each of these measures. Uh, and that was Saturday. On Wednesday, uh, the day of the hearing uh, for right to work in the Uh, House committee, hundreds of union members showed up. Uh, Lo and behold, when the doors opened to go to the committee room and have our members and uh, workers come in to see the proceedings, uh, all the chairs were somehow mysteriously filled already uh, by a group of folks from so-called Americans for Prosperity, the Koch Brothers organization, who mysteriously had some... uh, You know, breakfast meeting there, but decided that they could stay the entire period of time uh, during which the hearing was to be held. Um, And they had the doors locked and the drapes pulled so that we didn't even know they were in there. Uh, And that, you know, caused quite a ruckus and a lot of dissatisfaction among our membership who loudly and proudly protested. We had uh, quite a few people there, union members, their families, friends, our supporters, uh, packing the hallways of the state capitol. Uh, The governor came in to testify. Uh, I was there to testify along with our partners with the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy. And the governor gave his testimony amid uh, loud protesting in the hallway, and his testimony could hardly be heard. He talked about right to work, prevailing wage, and, you know, he basically promoted these bills as some sort of economic development agenda for Kentucky. And of course, you know, our position on that is that it's the wrong economic development agenda. And after the hearing was over, the governor left and uh, had to walk through the crowds of union members who, uh, you know, continued to uh, ask him questions uh, and, and uh, protest loudly against these actions. So uh, we had the hearing. I was able to, uh, to testify as well as our partners with the Center for Economic Policy, and uh, we rebutted every contention that has been made about this you know, hoax called right to work. And then as the week progressed, there were several other committee meetings on each one of these items uh, where we had significant union participation, and in each one we testified vigorously against uh, these bills uh, and answered all the questions that were put forth. And then, of course, on Saturday, Several thousand union members came to the Capitol to watch the proceedings and uh, protest very loudly and to hold their representatives and senators accountable. Uh, and our protest lasted for hours, uh, and it was heard very loudly in each one of the chambers. We were able to have our union members and supporters in the galleries uh, as well as you know thousands of members all throughout the Capitol, and they conducted themselves with you know, uh, we'll say great, uh, you know, esteem and respect and, uh, you know, but we're not, uh, you know, they didn't hold back uh, uh, in their their protest and uh, we loudly protested uh, these bills uh, and these actions that are taking uh, place so rapidly uh, in some sort of, you know, pent-up vendetta against organized labor here in Kentucky and we're going to continue working on this. This isn't over. Uh, by any stretch, so uh, they may have gotten away with uh, winning a battle, but th- this war isn't over in Kentucky.
1: Wow, uh, that sounds pretty dramatic. And so, uh, just to clarify, there's a piece in the legislation that involves banning public workers from striking. Is that a component of this?
2: Yes, it is. Uh, that actually was thrown in there as well, as another uh, smack at organized labor, uh, as well as just you know workers in general, uh, you know, in the public sector. Uh, and there's already been, you know, different levels of prohibitions against striking in the public sector already, uh, but nothing this blatant. And, you know, we, uh, in, at the state level, we don't even have a collective bargaining law. Uh, basically, we have bargaining units in, in various uh, localities, uh, especially in Jefferson County where Louisville is and Fayette where Lexington is. Uh, and several others, smattering of other collective bargaining relationships in the public sector throughout the state uh, with some fire, f- firefighters, uh, police, uh, and some teaching units. But uh, it, by, by and large, the uh, state law does not uh, provide for collective bargaining for, for public employees or state employees.
0: So beyond the, the pretty big protests that you guys already had, how has sort of the public um, responded to this news?
2: Well, I got to tell you, I think uh, the press coverage, uh, the social media coverage, uh, uh, the newspaper coverage uh, that was uh, put forth. Uh, in response to the protest uh, and the uprising, we'll say, or rising up of, of workers and union members, uh, was extremely positive. I, I really believe that uh, if you view the uh, clips and the uh, uh, some of the footage from the rallies and such and uh, the amount of hits that they've received, which has been enormous, uh, you can see that we, we took the narrative away uh, from the Legislature and the governor on this issue and on these issues. Uh, the narrative is about lowering wages for all workers in Kentucky, whether it's through the right to work bill, the prevailing wage bill, or the paycheck deception bill. They're all designed to do one thing, that is to weaken unions so that we have less collective bargaining power, so that corporations can make more profit and workers can be paid less. That's the equation that people are studying and have understood about what this is all about. You know, it's kind of ironic that when we hear from the legislators uh, while they sit up uh, in their uh, chairs during hearings, uh, the ones that, you know, may be voting for these bills uh, have been prefacing their remarks with, well, I'm not anti-union, uh, I wouldn't do anything to hurt the union. Uh, you know, these kinds of, you know, uh, there's reticence for them to, you know, overtly attack uh, because, you know, Kentucky's been a traditionally strong union state for, for the South. We have maintained a good level of uh, collective bargaining here, uh, commensurate with the national uh, rate of, of unionization. Uh, We have, you know, just, you know, large unions and the Teamsters, the UAW, UFCW. Uh, Of course, we have the long tradition of the United Mine Workers here. And, you know, folks uh, have lots of people in their communities, uh, whether they're large uh, communities or small, that are in unions in Kentucky. Uh, We have factories and union shops all throughout the whole Commonwealth from one end to the other. And I think that the... I'm starting to realize that, you know, it, ain't, it isn't right to uh, attack unions uh, because the workers in Kentucky can't afford uh, to be paid any less. Uh, we haven't, you know, had any, you know, great advances in uh, workers' incomes here, uh, in, especially in, in the rural counties here in Kentucky. And I think people are very aware uh, that folks in Kentucky aren't, you know, interested in taking a pay cut. Uh, or having unions weakened uh, because they understand the basic function that unions play in raising wages for all workers. And I believe that uh, our legislators are going to be uh, hearing more about that uh, as we go forward.
1: So beyond the immediate protests, what is Labor's plan for dealing with this in the future? Is there a potential for a repeal um, You know, under this administration? What is the landscape looking like?
2: What it's looking like is that uh, it's it's about mobilizing, and informing, and uh, motivating our members uh, and, and workers that aren't in unions. And, and you'd be surprised how many of them uh, have attended our rallies, uh, have been, you know, supportive of us. Uh, our attention is really going to be focused on how the votes were taken and whether or not we can link up and get our membership to. Be more active uh, at the grassroots level to contact their representatives, uh, to talk to them about their this impact that it's going to have on them and their families, uh, and to inform them that if they you know either don't change the way they are viewing these things or voting, uh, then they will be voted out. Uh, I think they're all very much aware that the results of this election were more about the top of the ticket than it was about their race at the state house level. And when they are up for election in two short years, uh, there's not going to be that effect again. And they're going to have to stand on their own merits. And we're going to hold them accountable for the votes they've taken. We've taken the vote tally from each one of the chambers on each one of the bills, and we have sent it out to members, and we handed it out during the rally, and we want our members and their families to know how these representatives have voted. So when we go back to them and say, hey, here's the voting record, you, you need to consider that when you go to the polls. And I think that will have a great impact. And, you know, certainly we're going to just kind of uh, reorganize ourselves here uh, and continue to fight back and, and really to uh, concentrate our efforts in, in some areas where we may not have been in before. And I think that a lot of this is going to be about mobilizing and doing a lot more informative work, uh, whether it's through the you know paid media, uh, whether it's through our media, or whether it's through social media. Uh, we're going to be getting the word out to our members and their families to what impact this is going to have, and how their representatives are not representing them in the state capital, or if they are, to thank them for doing so.
1: Just in terms of um, you know your ability yeah. to do some of that organizing. Um, we know that the issue with right to work is very much that it actually curtails or, or inhibits um, or organizing itself so um, you know with this free rider problem looming uh, what do you think the direct immediate impact of the law will be on your ability to mobilize your membership or to um, or to organize or finance your operations
2: uh, I don't think it's going to have much in an effect at all. Myself, uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, we will still be able to focus our efforts on organizing. Uh, you know, certainly there's, you know, even, you know financial elements uh, involved with organizing. Uh, but in general, you know, if we're able to uh, organize uh, workers, uh, it, it's, a, it's still a positive thing for us. And if workers don't, you know, want to financially support the union, uh, and get the benefits. Well, we're going to have to live with that, and they have lived with it in many other states for many, many decades. Uh, you know, and in some places, we have union shops in right-to-work states that are, you know, 100% of the members participating fully as dues-paying members. Uh, And, you know, it's all a question of whether or not we can, you know, thoroughly educate and inculcate unionism into folks and get them motivated to be a part of a union uh, that benefits them and their families. And that's kind of getting back to the basics, and I think that uh, is something certainly that we're ready to do, and I think our unions here in Kentucky are too.
0: Talk a little bit about the, um, the Bevan administration, the political turn that just happened in Kentucky, um, this context in, you know, not only nationally having an, an administration coming in that is anti-union, but what happened on the state level there.
2: Well, you know, with uh, Bevin coming in with uh, a mere 16% of the vote, uh, you know, that's that's where we're at here with with his election. And really, it gets back to, you know, some of our uh, intonations about elections have consequences and that we have to have folks that are fully informed and motivated to get out and vote on Election Day so that we don't get people like Matt Bevan to come in and run an agenda uh, that is so clearly in favor of his corporate cronies uh, and crony capitalism uh, that. You know, we end up with what we got, which is, you know, him taking away health care benefits to our uh, you know, nationally recognized Kentucky Connect program, uh, and disenfranchising, yeah. you know, tens of thousands of Kentuckians, if not more, uh, who have gotten health care for the first time, uh, and then going into this whole anti you know, union, anti, you know, labor uh, you know, program that he's orchestrating here. Uh, along with the House and Senate leadership, uh, so you know it's a it's another one of those uh, we you know elections have consequences, and when we elect somebody that obviously had not the interest of Kentucky's working families in in mind, uh, we we end up with what we got here, uh, which is you know a an anti union tirade of bills uh, pushed through. Uh, as quickly as they possibly could uh, to uh, try and, you know, motivate their base uh, to continue, you know, fighting unions and lowering wages.
1: Yeah. So Right to Work um, has gotten a lot of attention nationwide as an attack on, on organized labor. But, um, you know, as, as you mentioned before, we've also seen some important uh, worker movements led by non-unionized workers across Kentucky, Uh, in recent years, um, including, for instance, the Fight for 15 and some progressive uh, strands of organizing out in coal country. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what non-union workers are doing in terms of building solidarity and just fighting for labor in general?
2: Well, as you mentioned, uh, we have uh, quite a bit of activity across the state uh, from different groups doing different things. You know, we have a great citizens group called Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, who have organized uh, citizen groups, community groups, uh, and have been allied with unions as well, and very supportive of our efforts. Uh, you know, that's one of the things I just you know mentioned briefly is that we've had you know quite a bit of support from our allies uh, in the progressive community. I think you know recognizing that. Unions uh, are the, we'll say, the first, uh, you know, on top of the hit list here, you know, uh, aside from what the governor did with the uh, Kentucky Connect, the healthcare care program, uh, their main goal was to try and, you know, weaken uh, unions and to try and put us out of business, take us out of the political process uh, so that they could have full, you know, free reign. Uh, but everybody else in the progressive community knows that this is not an agenda that stops at right to work or prevailing wage repeal. Uh, And that is a really, you know, key thing for folks to understand is that this agenda uh, goes way beyond attacking workers and unions. It goes to attacking women, the environment, uh, you know, any number of different organizations and entities uh, that are either dependent upon, you know, government help or, you know, or community-based groups, uh, you know, they're – you know, capabilities uh, will be curtailed uh, through, you know, budgetary cuts uh, and re- shifting around the fi- uh, resources uh, and moving government uh, agencies and cabinets and closings and things of this nature. Uh, that's one of the key things here in Kentucky is that, you know, our progressive movement, uh, Council of Churches, held a prayer vigil today over at the Capitol for Workers. Uh, you know, we've had, you know, quite a bit of folks that uh, – have you know you know worked in alliance with us? Whether it's our partners at Kentucky's for the Commonwealth, uh, Kentucky Center for Economic Policy, uh, Council of Churches, uh, you know we have worked in in alliance with our progressive uh, brothers and sisters uh, for for a long period of time, and uh, we will be there as well when it when they're you know under attack as well for the things that they stand for. So. Uh, The alliances uh, are very, very strong and significant, and they have an impact on our ability to get our our message out. And uh, we we definitely have, uh, you know, maintained and and enjoyed, shall we say, uh, a positive relationship with, you know, so many a broad spectrum of progressive groups uh, in Kentucky, uh, you know, who speak for the people of Kentucky.
0: So, on a, a national level, um, New Hampshire and Missouri are also facing pushes for right-to-work bills right now, and I saw people talking about the fact that the bill in New Hampshire is almost verbatim um, an, a model bill from ALEC. Um, so, can you talk about this in the sort of national context that these states are all seeing very similar pushes right now? Oh, yeah.
2: I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's so, you know, it's... So plain and obvious that this is a, you know, nationally coordinated strategy by, you know, the Koch brothers through all of their SNAP organizations, whether it's the Bluegrass Institute here, uh, whether it's their, you know, uh, Americans for Prosperity for plutocrats that they've established here in Kentucky. Cool. You know, any number of these organizations that they've been funneling huge money through, the PACs that they've been using to take control of these legislative chambers, the money that's been coming in from, you know, Arthur Laffer, who's now, you know, a big political operative and has poured tons of money into Kentucky during this last uh, election cycle. You know, there's absolutely no doubt that this is a, you know, a national uh, you know effort that has been going on from state to state we 've witnessed it right across the uh, river into Indiana of course Wisconsin with Scott Walker of course in Michigan uh, they 've passed the right to work law that 's been temporarily enjoined in West Virginia uh, you know we use signs all over the place that we, that we in every one of our protests it says stop the war on workers and this is not a war on workers that is uh, limited or is focused on Kentucky this is a national war on workers that is being orchestrated by billionaires so that they can subjugate workers, exploit them to a higher degree, and make more profit. And they're doing it by taking over these legislative chambers and these governor's offices like they have here in Kentucky, and once they get this uh, triumvirate of control uh, you know, it's anybody's uh, – it's, it's full speed ahead. And that's, it's so evident and obvious uh, what happened here in Kentucky that, you know, within a five-day span, they turned back to K- clocks on Kentucky workers by 100 years and, uh, you know, lowered wages for all workers in the guise of, uh, you know, economic development. So we can bring some more companies here that want to exploit workers to the maximum, uh, while our economic development programs have been at the, you know, top of the list nationally nationally. Uh, so, you know, it should be just totally obvious to everybody across the country that you know this is not anywhere near just some you know isolated case or you know this is just Kentucky going right to work. You no, know, this is part of a you know long-term, well-financed corporate strategy to take over the political process of the United States of America, whether it's state by state or with the well with Donald Trump uh, to the detriment. Of workers and obviously to unions, the only thing that stands for good, you know, paying jobs and good wages and a, you know, good economy.
1: Yeah, and so as you're saying, this is spreading, you know, state by state. And of course, the big trophy would be getting all the way to uh, Washington and establishing all this as uh, national policy. So, uh, talk about um, what what you anticipate under Trump. Is the fight at the state level going to get harder? Um, What are your hopes for um, anything we can pull out of this as maybe a silver lining in terms of organizing in the future under the Trump administration?
2: Well, I, I guess I would simply say there is a silver lining. You know, and it gets to the, to the whole, uh, you know, you get what you pay for. Uh, you know, we told you so. Uh, there are consequences to these elections. Uh, and when people start feeling them directly and when they start feeling it in their pocketbook and their wages are lowered, uh, their ability to have unions is restricted, uh, and they have, it has a direct impact on, on folks, uh, which is going to, you know, probably happen pretty quick. And uh, buyer's remorse uh, on a large scale is going to take place. And workers, I think, are going to recognize that, hey, it wasn't those unions that were out here doing anything negative. Uh, it's, it's these elected representatives. And what we need to do is to organize more effectively at our workplaces uh, so that we can advance, so that we can have a better chance for a better standard of living, so that our children can have a better chance at a good education. You know, what's happened, as you very well know, is that uh, workers have been divided. They've been divided along social, cultural issues. Uh, And we in the union movement have always preached, uh, you know, pretty much bread and butter uh, issues. You know, wages, working conditions, collective bargaining, safety and health, retirement, security, uh, health care, all these things that we look at as, you know, essential for a good standard of living and a good life. Uh, The other side has been promoting these, you know, divisive issues. And while they've been doing that, you know, they've been peeling off people that have been uh, convinced that if they, you know, vote one way, they're going to go to heaven. If they vote another way, they're going to hell. And, you know, our message is a lot more uh earthly shall we say it has to do with whether or not people have a good standard of living and whether you know they have a good job and whether they can get to work every day and uh have a safe conditions and go home at night uh that's what you know we promote and i think once people start losing uh those essential uh rights and those essential elements of a good life uh and you know can't afford to buy a new car and our economy starts going down because consumer spending gets slack Uh, I think folks are going to start waking up, and I I believe it's already happening. uh, You mentioned the fight for 15. Uh, There are younger workers around this country uh, that have finally recognized or do recognize that the only way for them to advance uh, is through collective bargaining, is through having rights on the job, is through a negotiated agreement that guarantees them a good wage and good benefits. I think they're starting to, you know, recognize that the only way for them to advance is through organizing uh and, and working together. You know, our our society has been, you know, split up and people are, you know, going their own way individualistic and such, but at the same time, I think people are recognizing that without any kind of organization, without working together, uh they'll get picked off one by one, which is you know, evidently what's what is uh, going to transpire here. So, you know, in a sense, I'm optimistic that people are going to rise up and we're going to have uh, significant levels of people that are finally going to start exercising their rights, uh, because there's only so much they're going to take, uh, and people that are working minimum wage jobs or near minimum wage and trying to raise a family, uh, what options do they have? And uh, we want them, and uh, we, we think that they you know, will recognize that organizing unionization are, are the keys to their future. And the only by working together and organizing, you know, will they be able to use those keys.
1: Mm -hmm. And uh, just very quickly to wrap up, um, you know, we're moving towards Inauguration Day and there are Senate confirmation hearings coming up. Anything specific to keep in mind about um, Trump's appointees um, or the Supreme Court or the uh, National Labor Relations Board, for that matter?
2: (laughs) Well... Anything to keep in mind? Well, uh, yeah, everything, I guess, and how everything is going to be different and how screwed up it's going to be and how these uh, folks that, you know, he's nominating, uh, whether it's the Labor Secretary Commerce or whomever or Attorney General, are some of the worst uh, representatives of those, you know, know, entities or or those branches of government that uh, we've ever seen. Uh, And we certainly are going to keep pushing back on these nominees and uh, this agenda that's, uh, you know, due to take uh, us by storm here on this uh, inauguration day. Uh, And we've been, you know, informing our members and the public about, uh, you know, what these people stand for and kind of, you know, letting them know that uh, uh, the guy lied to you uh, and continues to do so, uh, and you you better get used to that and uh, maybe do something different the next time. Uh, because we know that, you know, a lot of our members, you know, voted this way, uh, and we know that they were lied to going in, uh, and now they're going to, we're going to end up, you know, getting the fruits of all this, uh, nonsense that, uh, Trump's going to throw out here and it's, uh, uh, going to be a very, uh, I guess, a, you know, contentious period and, uh, you know, hoping that workers, uh, you know, recognize that uh, they were hoodwinked and uh, do something uh, different or, or continue organizing and pushing back uh, as much as they can during the time that, uh, you know, he's in office.
0: That was Bill Londrigan of the Kentucky AFL-CIO. We will, of course, keep up with this story and the others. And if you are in a state facing no rights at work laws, let us know at hashtag Beliebert or Beliebert at dissentmagazine.org. You're listening to Belabored, a descent magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org.
1: And now it's time for Arg! I wish I'd written that where we talk about the things you read recently that we wish we'd written but didn't. So my pick is from the New York Times. It is by Claire Kane Miller. It is called why men don't want the jobs done mostly by women. You might have heard during the Great Recession that women benefited in some weird ways, namely the service sector jobs, which are highly gendered and stereotypically done as women's work, they had a bit of a boom, relatively speaking. Meanwhile, the traditional blue collar jobs that are seen as the domain of men, construction, mentoring, et cetera, those dried up, as did the once solid wages, benefits, and union coverage that went along with them. So, nearly a decade on from the financial collapse, what to make of this? Is that pink-collar boom a boon for women in the workforce? Not exactly. It means there's actually been a proliferation of jobs for women, but this has meant that those jobs that were expanding are also not very high-paying and not very secure. And in fact, in many ways, as we've reported before, marking an outright regression from the labor standards that have often sadly, historically been the preserve of working-class men. According to Claire Kane Miller, quote, the two occupations predicted to decline most quickly from 2014 to 2024 are locomotive fires, shrinking 70%, vehicle electronics installers and repairers, down 50%, and those two sectors are 96% and 98% male. And of the fastest-growing jobs... Are health aides, which are about 90% female. And so when men take these so called pink collar jobs, they actually have more security, according to recent research, but they are paid less and feel stigmatized. So is this a fair trade off? Maybe we actually shouldn't be talking about any sort of trade off. Why should these two things be so at odds with each other? The idea that uh, labor is both associated with care and associated with women, and the fact that it is somehow inherently worthless. So that doesn't mean these pink collar jobs are necessarily worse for men. Some research actually shows that men do relatively well in these jobs, in part because they're men. And here is where the curious intersection of culture and economics comes in. Many men are reluctant to take a job that that is perceived as women's work, and this in turn further entrenches the gender divide in the labor market, and while people are certainly justified in not being eager to take up a job at an unlivable wage level, the gender segmentation, being such a dominant force in who gets hired and who doesn't, makes it easier to exploit the workers who are steered towards these jobs. In this case, it's mostly low-income women, women of color, etc., and the cycle continues. Lather, rinse, repeat, sexism reproduces itself between women who are undervalued for their labor and the men who feel that those jobs, are, at a personal level, undermine their value as breadwinners.
0: This week, my arg is from an old friend, Melissa Chadburn, a longtime labor organizer turned fiction and nonfiction writer. Her piece, supported by the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and published at Dame Magazine, is titled, If You're in the Fight, Get Ready to Do the Work. It's a beautiful, gut-wrenching piece about the violence women face at work and the strength they can draw from it anyway, about the work they do to organize and fight even when our society denies them basic rights like, you know, the right to vote. It is a personal story, a story of one woman, a story of many, many people. Melissa is such a beautiful writer that I kind of just want to read her to you. Um, she writes, quote, This mantra has served me well when sitting across the table from businessmen, when negotiating union contracts, when people beside me were fighting for their lives, for their pension, for their health care, for back pay, for some basic human dignities. I have had the most power when I roll up my sleeves and convey the message, Let's go. I've got all the time in the world, and I will not break. While I've witnessed a similar technique employed by white guys in suits, people with personal assistance and power who are largely assholes, it's we who have lost everything who can do it better, because we know what it feels like to be truly powerless, to have absolutely nothing to lose. Just last week, I followed a man to his apartment to get him to pay a woman for her work, and he knew he had to write that check for the sad, simple fact that I had nothing else to do that night. I would go on to dedicate every door knock, every voter registration, every phone bank, every protest, every act of civil disobedience, every contract negotiated for every working single mother or every working father or son or somebody's brother, every filing of an unlawful labor practice, every laugh, every chant shouted at the top of my lungs, every dance move, every queer word out of my mouth, every loving act I ever did, every ounce of sweat and every sentence I've ever agonized over to those powerless memories, a kind of eternal flame threatening to light it up and leave nothing on the floor save our blackened foundations. These fires don't die the message ultimately of her piece is to fight through the despair that has been so prevalent since the election I have been thinking that that despair is its own kind of pleasure a luxury in its way but it's a luxury that many people can't afford as Melissa writes quote, If it were your child, your mother, your father, your sibling, who was going to be torn from you, if you had seen the man, some officer, some uniformed person, and heard that the orders had been made and you had only until the end of this month to make good on your promise to keep your family intact, how fast could you walk? How soon could you knock on doors? How many conversations could you have with friends and neighbors with the little cooing baby in your arms, the small hands grasping at your chest? You would not break. That wail a baby makes when she is thrust into the bleak state of need drumming at your neck. Play the long game. Be the unbreakable one we've been waiting for. That is all we have for today. Thank you as always for listening to us and a special thanks to our sustaining members. You can sign up at dissentmagazine.org slash belabored dash membership and get your excellent belabored tote bag for $5 a month. Thank you to the folks at Descent for hosting us and our excellent producer, Natasha Lewis, who is also the co-editor with me of a special section in the new issue of Descent on the Future of Work. You can check that out at the website and subscribe to the magazine. You can also, as always, tweet at us at hashtag belabored and email us at belabored at if you are a Kentuckian or a Chrysler worker or Harls- a Hardee's or Carl's Jr. worker if you want to talk about the Trump cabinet or nominate yourself as shadow labor secretary or nominate somebody else. Thank you again for listening and we will be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored.
2: Bye.